Um My father's been a brother, lived here, he had a full life over here. Um, he grew up in Slavotka, learned in Yeshiva, got married, moved to Kovna, then moved here. Um, the, uh, you know, he, he's, by the time the war came, he was in his 40s. He was a person who had a, a business. He was one of the few Balabatim in, in the Kovna Slavotka. was um, a Bentaira. And he was allowed to lay in his Labotki Yeshiva Ben Azmanim. He had a wife and two children who, um, by the time the war came, I think his oldest was eight or nine. Um, the war came, and you know, as, as you have to be able to picture that this was a, a whole world over here. Slabotka and Kovna was an entire world. And by the time the war was over, there was nothing left. You know, people speak a lot about, um, Ellie mentioned before the horrors of the program, what it was like, but it, I think it takes some, some thinking about what it's like for a person to have a full life. At 50, most people start thinking about retiring and writing memoirs. Um, when the war was over, he was close to 50, and he had to make a decision between just sort of cutting himself off and forgetting about the world or um, starting a life and and he you know he, he made a decision that his responsibility is to start a new life he married my mother who was 15 years younger easier than him um, she came from a very different world than him and he did it because he felt the right thing to do is reestablish um, we grew up with a tremendously beautiful home I mean, people talk about being children of survivors. I never felt that way. My father was a wonderful father. He discussed things with us, spoke with us, took us on walks. Um, it was just an extremely, um, it, it, it was an excellent uh, fatherhood for any circumstance. My father spoke a lot about the life before because the life was beautiful. He, he, he admired the Litvish Eden. He admired their um, their sneers, the fact that they never they understated themselves, the fact that they didn't speak about themselves, the fact that they did things without complaining. Those are those are things that were very very dear to him, um, and he bemoaned that America is not like that. But he would tell us a lot about it. He would speak a lot about it, describe it to us. The, he didn't speak about actual killings. Those are things he didn't talk about, but. A certain events in the ghetto, certain things that were extremely meaningful to him. Um, my father told me, and this is very much, this is kind of uh, something that fits him. He said one of the Germans looked a little more menschlich than the other ones. And he turned to him and asked him, how can you people do this? And the person told him, it's your fault. You Jews brought this war upon the world and you're suffering its consequence. My father told me he really thought the person believes it. He felt the person, you know, was was a half-wit, okay, like most of the others. He felt the person was a blockhead, and some had just hammered it in. Um, but he, he, you know, that was where he felt it. Um, my father told me stories about Rabbi Vrom who was with him in the ghetto, and he was his Rebbe. 
he spoke about Ramotl Pergamansky, who was an incredible figure. Ramotl Pergamansky was one of the, possibly the great, the most chashev, quote-unquote, bacher in the yeshiva world. He was probably close to 40, or late 30s. Um, he was a giant ilui, a balmusa. My father attended to him, and my father uh, spoke to me about him. And he said things that he said, and Hanhagis that he had in the ghetto. A lot of it is, it's written up in, in the book on Ramotl. A, a lot of it I heard first hand from my father. Um, my father spoke about the Kovnerov, that my father was Mishamis. Um, my father was able to smuggle food into the ghetto. My father worked on a food brigade. They would go in every morning, they would go out of the ghetto, they would bring food for the ghetto, and he was able to smuggle stuff in, and um, he would ask Rebmatlpargamansky, who should I give it to? He, he didn't want to pass in it on his own, I had a, a story once. I was sitting Shabbos uh, by the Suda in Azerbira, and I hear a knock on my door. An elderly person um, a, open, knocks on the door. I, o- I open up. The person's name is Rebzalman Kremerman. And he asked me, he's, he was a, a, a nephew of Rebdoniel from Kelm, a, a Balabas, a very fine person. He asked me if I'm related to my father, to Betzin. I said, yes, I'm a son. He said, your fa- it's because your father I'm alive today, because he told me that I should come every day 4 o'clock to his house, there'll be soup waiting for me, I shouldn't come early, I shouldn't come later. In other words, he had a lot of people and he wanted each one not to know the other one. But all of them was those that Reb Muttel told him. He, he felt it's a Shailon of Fascist, he can't pass in it, and Reb Muttel needs to pass in it. Um, he, um, my father had, I mean, he gave us over a tremendous love for everything about literature hidden to him. Um, the, 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 the Avas Chachma, the refinement, and, um, and he carried it over. He, the, he, he spoke about it a lot. Um, he, that's why he, I, I remember the name Linkovaskas from when I'm a, a young boy. I, 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 you know, I could never put a picture to it, but that's what it was. Um, my father remembered life, he remembered the Alta Slabotka. As a young boy, he saw him. In, in the yeshiva. Um, so my father was born, let's say, 1903, and uh, he, he was in Kremitschuk. He, he, he went, a lot of the things we spoke about, the, the Jews being chased out to deep Russia, my father spent some of his childhood years in Kremitschuk. He remembers uh, things about it. Um, so I'll go upon him. It's, it's um, you know, he, he remembered Rebel Hanan. He didn't speak about Rabbi Hanan being killed, but he remembered Rabbi Hanan, and he described him to me as, you know, a towering figure in, in just, not mitzad the londest and everything, but mitzad the way he carried himself and the way he projected himself to people, and the way people saw him. He, he you know, he, he was a, he was First of all, he was a very tall person relative to people in those days, Rabbi Hanan. And he also, there was something royal about his carriage that my father was extremely um, taken, everyone was taken by it. Um, so I'll upon him, you know, it's, it's a, uh, it was a real world, um, a, a real life experience for him, all these things that are stories now. And for me, it's the same, you know, he, he brought it to life and it's the first time I actually was able to, um, to get a physical sense of it. Anything you wanted? What? Um, we're now heading to the seventh fort. Um, I, Mr. Ellie will speak more about it. He has a letter and things.
And so, yeah, you want to test down here. Strategic, strategic position being in the northwest of the Russian Empire uh, on the borders with Sweden and other other countries and when the Germans come in these are places that are easy to use as prisons and killing grounds especially the fourth the seventh and the ninth and the uh, largest number of Eden which is uh, around over 50,000 those are the ninth fort smaller numbers, but significant numbers by the 7th and the 4th. Um, uh, an important person in each ghetto was the Alto Judenrats. The Germans understood that they weren't able to control everyone in the ghetto, all the Yudin in the ghetto by themselves. So there was a Jewish police, and on top of the police there was a Judenrat, Jewish council, who were in charge. And most famously, some of them come out positive, some come out negative. If anyone has read about Adam Cheniakov in Warsaw, uh, the most controversial, the most negative is, is Chaim Rumkovsky in Lodge. But the head of the Yudenrats here in, in Kovna was uh, a doctor called Ochanan Elkas, who was Mamish. Uh, he come, comes through amazing from beginning to end of the ghetto. It was a very long period that the ghetto was here, all the way uh, to the end, uh, until the end of 1943. And he's, he tries his best. He tries his best to, to, to help smuggle people out, to help smuggle things in. Is the, the zero cooperation with the Nazis on his part, as opposed to other heads of Yudenrat who did cooperate with Nazis. So the, there's an amazing, an amazing letter that we have. Uh, he, sent, he had a son and a daughter who he managed to get to London, and uh, they, his family actually today still live in London, Alcas. And he managed to, manages to get this letter that he's written on his deathbed and goes through very much of what happens here in the ghetto. And just to, to close your eyes, just to listen to these words, it really, really, really uh, brings the picture of the ghetto closer. He writes, My beloved son and daughter, I'm writing these lines. Sorry, can you hear? Okay. It's a long letter, but we'll, we'll start it and I'll, I'll put it onto the group. My beloved son and daughter, I'm writing these lines, my dear children, in the Vale of Tears in Slabodka, Kovna Ghetto, where I've been for over two years. We have now heard in a few days our fate is to be sealed. The ghetto is to be crushed and torn, asu torn asunder. Whether we are all to perish, 
or whether a few of us are to survive is in Hashem's hands. We fear that only those capable of slave labor will live. The rest of us are probably sentenced to death. We are left a few out of many. Out of the 35,000 Jews of Kovna, approximately 17,000 remain. Out of a quarter of a million Jews in Lithuania, only 25,000 live, plus 5,000 who, during the last few days, were deported to hard labor in Latvia, stripped of all their belongings. The rest were put to death in terrible ways by the followers of the greatest Haman of all time and of all generations. Some of those dear and close to us, too, are no longer with us. Your aunt Hannah, your uncle Arya were killed with 1,500 souls of the ghetto on October 4th, 1941. Uncle Tzvi, who was lying in the hospital suffering from a broken leg, was saved by a ness. All the patients, doctors, nurses, relatives and visitors who happened to be there were burnt to death after soldiers had blocked all the doors and windows of the hospital and set fire to it. In the provinces, apart from Shavuot, no single Jew survives. Your uncle Dov and his son Shmuel were taken out and killed with the rest of the Calvaria Kehilla during the first months of the war. That's about two years ago. Due to outer forces and inner circumstances, only our ghetto has managed to survive and live out its diaspora life for the last two years in slavery, hard labor and deprivation. Almost all of our clothing, belongings and books were taken from us by the authorities. The last massacre, when 10,000 victims were killed at one time, took place on October 28, 1941. Our total kahila had to go through the selection by our rulers, life or death. I am the man who with my own eyes saw those about to die. I was there early on the morning of October 29th in the camp that led to the slaughter at the 9th Fort. With my own ears I heard the awe-inspiring and terrible symphony, the weeping and screaming of 10,000 people, old and young, a scream that tore at the heart of heaven. No ear had to to hear such cries through the ages and generations. With many of our martyrs, I challenged my Creator, and with them, from my heart torn in agony, I cried, In my effort to save people, here and there, I was beaten by soldiers. Wounded and bleeding, I fainted, and was carried in the arms of friends to a place outside the camp. There, a small group of about 30 or 40 survived, witnesses to the fire. We are, it appears, one of the staging centers in the east, before our eyes, before the very windows of our houses, that have passed over the last two years many, many thousands of Jews from southern Germany and Vienna to be taken with their belongings to the Ninth Fort, which is some kilometers from us. There they are killed with extreme cruelty. We learned later that they were misers. They were told they were coming to Kovna to settle in our ghetto. He goes through with more details and this is how he ends the letter. Yol, my beloved, be a faithful son to your people. Take care of your nation. Do not worry about the Gentiles. During our long gallows, they have not given us an eighth of an eighth of what we have given them. Immerse yourself in this question and return to it again and again. Try to settle in Eretz Yisrael. 
tie your destiny to the land to the land of our future even if life there may be may be hard it is life full of content and meaning great and mighty is the power of a mona and the token the token can move mountains do not look to the left or to the right as you pursue your path if at times you see your people straying do not let your heart lose courage my son it's not their fault it's our bitter gollus that has made them so. Let truth be always before you and under your feet. MS will guide you and show you the path of life. And you, my dear daughter Sorrow, read most carefully what I've just said to, to y'all. I trust your clear mind and sound judgment. Do not live for the moment. Do not stray from your chosen path and pick flowers at the wayside. They soon wilt. Feed a life full of beauty, a pure life full of content and meaning. For all your days, walk together. Let no distance separate you. Let no serious event come between you. Remember, both of you, what Amalek has done to us. Remember and never forget it all your days. And pass this memory as a sacred testament to future generations. The Germans killed, slaughtered, and murdered us in complete impunity. I was there with them. I saw them when they sent thousands of people, men, women, children, infants to the death while enjoying their breakfast and while mocking our martyrs. I saw them coming back from the murderous missions, dirty and stained from head to foot with the blood of our dear ones. They sat at their table, eating and drinking, listening to light music. They are professional executioners. The soil of Lithuania is soaked with our blood, killed at the hands of Lithuanians themselves. Lithuanians with whom we had lived for hundreds of years. And with all our strength, we helped to achieve their own national independence. 7,000 of our brothers and sisters were killed by Lithuanians in terrible and barbarous ways the last days of June 1941. They themselves and no others executed whole congregations following German orders. They searched with special pleasure cellars and wells, fields and forests for those in hiding, turned them over to the authorities, never have anything to do with them, and their children are accursed forever. I'm writing this in an hour when many desperate souls, widows and orphans, threadbare and hungry, are camping on my doorstep, imploring us for help. My strength is ebbing. There is a desert inside me. My soul is scorched. I am naked and empty. There are no words in my mouth, but you, my most dearly beloved, will know what I wanted to say to you at this hour. And now for a moment I close my eyes. I see you both standing before me. I embrace and kiss you both and I say to you again that until my last breath, until my last breath, I remain your loving father, O'Connor.